It's Friday, February 21st. Welcome to Skim This. We're breaking down the most complex stories of the day and giving you the context on why they matter. The U.S. and the Taliban have agreed to reduce fighting in Afghanistan for a week. It's kind of like a test run to see if they put down their weapons for good and possibly end America's longest war. But a lot could still get in the way. Then, we'll explore a shakeup in the American intelligence community, yet another potentially messy 2020 caucus, and we'll pay our respects to the man who gave us copy and paste. We're here to make your evening smarter. Let's skim this. What better way to head into your weekend than with a little peace and quiet? Well, for some, that's easier said than done. Today, the U.S. announced that it's reached an agreement to a seven-day reduction in violence with the Taliban. And if all goes well, potentially signing a more permanent peace deal could be in the works. This reduction in violence has also been called an understanding or a partial truce. And it kicked off earlier this afternoon when the clock struck midnight in Afghanistan. But this is far from a Cinderella situation. The U.S. and the Taliban have been warring it out for nearly two decades, when about a month after 9-11, President George W. Bush announced that U.S. and British forces had started bombing the Taliban in Afghanistan. So what does this reduction of violence actually mean? Well, it means that no major operations will take place to attack the Taliban, Afghans, or international forces. No roadside or suicide bomb attacks and no rockets. Sounds like a pretty good deal. But even with all of that, it's not being called a permanent ceasefire. And according to the Wall Street Journal, one U.S. official couldn't explain how this partial truce will be measured, but that the military will be the ones in charge of keeping tabs on how it all plays out. One thing that is for sure is that this partial truce is a total test. Because the crux of this deal is that the Taliban wants foreign militaries out. There are roughly 13,000 American forces operating right now in Afghanistan, and thousands more from over 30 other countries under NATO, all trying to fight terrorism and create peaceful conditions in the country. We are prepared to adjust our force level if the Taliban demonstrate the will and the ability to reduce violence and make real compromises. That's Jens Stoltenberg, the top guy at NATO speaking at a security conference in Munich last Saturday. You see, NATO is taking its playbook from the U.S. Some officials say other countries are also toying with the idea of withdrawing their own troops, but only after the U.S. does. And even if this seven-day vacay from violence goes well, the U.S. said it will look to sign an even bigger deal, which could speed up bringing more troops home. A deal that, if it succeeds, could officially end the war in Afghanistan a.k.a. the U.S.'s longest war. So clearly, there's a lot riding on this. But what are the chances of that actually happening? Because getting the U.S. and the Taliban to agree on anything isn't easy. The U.S., the Taliban, and the Afghan government have been having peace talks for years. But in these latest talks, the Afghan government wasn't even at the table. Which might seem odd, since Afghanistan is such a close U.S. ally. But the Taliban says, nah, the Afghan government is a U.S. puppet. And they shouldn't be a part of this. Given that it's been five months since the Afghan presidential election and we only just got the winner this week and the results are still being questioned, maybe getting the government involved would just complicate this whole thing. So what's the skim? The US and the Taliban are at it again to try to figure out a peace deal in Afghanistan. 
In this latest round of talks, the two have decided to keep things cool over the next seven days. So no bombs, no major attacks, and a lot less violence. If all that goes well, then the road may be cleared for an even bigger and permanent deal that would result in pulling out foreign troops and securing long-term peace in the country. And the stakes are high. Even if this reduction of violence period is successful, there's still a long way to go toward everyone getting what they want and peacing out. Earlier this week, President Trump announced a shakeup in the intelligence community. The acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, was out. And a new guy was in. Richard Grinnell. He's also the ambassador to Germany and is totally on Team Trump. At the time, the change looked like it was just part of Trump's post-impeachment purge. Trump's been firing slash reassigning a bunch of people who were part of the chain of events that led to his impeachment. And McGuire was the guy who handled the whistleblower complaint that kicked the whole thing off. But last night, we found out something else that happened last week might have been behind the switch. It was an intelligence briefing on Capitol Hill. And at first, we didn't know what it was about. Before we get into that, let's go a little further back. Remember, back in 2017, intelligence officials said Russia interfered in the 2016 election to help Trump become president. But Trump has rejected those claims for a while. Back in 2018, during a joint press conference with Vladimir Putin, Trump said that he asked the Russian president, who done it? I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. Intelligence officials have stood firm, though. And with another election right around the corner, they want to be ready. All right, back to the new stuff. We've now learned that intelligence briefing last week was about this very issue, the integrity of the 2020 U.S. elections. And spoiler alert, it wasn't great. The officials said that Russia was already interfering in the presidential election, trying to get Trump reelected. But the Russians aren't just interested in the general election next November. It looks like they're trying to interfere with the Democratic primaries, too. The primaries that are going on right now. Russian officials dismissed the intelligence briefing and called reports of Russian interference paranoid. Back on the home front, both parties are upset about the briefing, but for different reasons. Republican lawmakers in the room questioned the findings, and the president apparently lashed out at the director of national intelligence for letting the briefing happen to begin with. Trump says these reports just give Democrats ammunition against him. So when Trump replaced McGuire this week, some lawmakers said, he must have been fired because of that briefing. The White House said, nah, that's just a coincidence. But now, some White House aides have told the New York Times, TBH, Trump definitely turned on him after that briefing. Meanwhile, the news that Russia is already interfering in the election is really scaring some Democrats. But they're also focusing on how Trump handled the briefing. They're worried that Trump is bearing intelligence that's important to the country just because it could hurt him, even though national intelligence isn't supposed to be partisan. Democrat Jim Himes is a Connecticut congressman, and he told MSNBC it almost doesn't matter what intelligence officials told lawmakers. The compromise of the intelligence community uh, to, to be compromised in the service of the political aims uh, of President Trump, I mean, that isn't even democracy. So what's the skim? Intelligence officials are reporting that Russia is already interfering in the 2020 election. Their goal is to get Trump reelected. 
But instead of waiting for the general election next November, Russia is apparently starting early and interfering in the Democratic primary. And that's a big deal, because voters are already heading to the polls. And there were reports this afternoon that Russia set its sights on helping Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign, too. Next up to vote in the 2020 Democratic primaries is Nevada. Voters there will caucus tomorrow, and how should we put this? Caucusing has been getting a bad rap lately. Remember Iowa? On February 3rd, people around the country tuned in to see who won the Iowa caucus. Except there was nothing to announce. This was the reaction on ABC's Good Morning America the morning after those results were supposed to be in. The Iowa caucus is in chaos this morning after the Iowa Democratic Party says it can't yet declare a winner. This comes amid massive confusion over a new reporting system. The Biden campaign openly questioning what it calls, quote, considerable flaws. Counting up caucus results is never easy. That's because caucuses like the ones in Iowa and Nevada involve people gathering in rooms of all different sizes and then sorting into groups. And then if a candidate doesn't have 15% support in the room, those supporters need to move to another group. And all the while, someone's supposed to be counting these groups up. In the best of circumstances, that can be tricky. And it gets a lot worse when the smartphone app you're using to tally up results is plagued by a coding issue. That's what happened in Iowa. Volunteers say their app was so glitchy, they picked up their phones for another reason, to call in results the old-fashioned way, through a hotline only for those phone lines to be clogged up with spam calls. If caucus organizers in Nevada thought, at least that wasn't us, that relief was short-lived. Nevada was planning on using software from the same company that messed things up in Iowa to tally its results this weekend. So that mess in Iowa forced them to pivot. The changes are in direct response to what happened in Iowa. The state party scrapped plans to use the app built by Shadow Inc. after the app failed during the Iowa caucus. Well, now they're telling us they'll use a cloud-based Google product. Yep, you heard that right. The buggy software from Iowa is out. And Nevada's election results are being compiled in a Google form and submitted via iPads. Nevada's caucus organizers were sent a guide on how to enter results. And if people really need this much help, we're nervous for Saturday. Here was an actual excerpt from that how-to. Open iPad case. Hold iPad horizontally. Press the small round home button on the side of the screen twice. This brings you to your iPad home screen. Brilliant, so easy. Kind of like trying to get your own parents to figure out how to subscribe to your podcast. Huh. Well, caucus organizers say if there's any trouble with the iPads, they'll have paper backups of the results. What could go wrong? We'll start to get an answer to that question when the Nevada caucus gets underway on Saturday afternoon. For more on all things 2020, head on over to theskim.com slash 2020. Before we go today, we have one more piece of news to control V into the show. This week, we said goodbye to the inventor of the cut, copy, and paste. Larry Tesler died in his home in California after a lifetime spent making personal computers easier to use. We don't often think about the behind-the-scenes people in tech, but since the 1970s, Tesler racked up a number of patents through his work at companies like Xerox, Yahoo, Amazon, and Apple. 
He pioneered the idea for laptops, influenced the design of the first Mac computer, and even helped coin everyday terms like browser and user-friendly. From his fan base of friendly users, we hope he rests in peace. And that's all for Skim This. Thanks so much for listening this week, and don't forget to subscribe and rate and review us online. A lot of news happens over the weekend, so to catch up first thing on Monday, sign up for our morning newsletter, The Daily Skim. It's everything you need to know to start your day right in your inbox. You can sign up at theskim.com.